Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's Dr. Negro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged on this last day of 2023. I can't believe we're going to be entering our fourth year of this program uh, next week. Um, so as always, I make sure I start every episode with uh, appreciation and gratitude and, and, and thanks um, uh, to all of our followers and listeners and those who I've met from faraway places, those I've had the privilege to talk to from faraway places, and even in our own, you know, you know, metaphorically backyard, um, as just one person who's trying to uh, talk about an entire field uh, that is uh, scientific, it's artistic, it's complicated, it's nebulous, it's predictable, it's unpredictable, it's a, uh, it's it's it's. Uh, a place that I enjoy and a space that I enjoy being in. And um, we will have uh, many more uh, episodes to come. And uh, uh, again, like I said, a heartfelt appreciation. And by the time some of you guys are listening to this, uh, depending where you are in the world, uh, you're already into 2024. So um, as opposed to doing kind of like a summary or wrap up like I've done in the past, um, I'm going to do a topic that I realize I've alluded to many times when Juliet actually brought this up. I've alluded to many times, uh, but I've never really done, I think, a specific topic or podcast on this. So this this one might be a little longer because there's a lot to talk about. And um, this one, I don't have many notes because uh, it's something I'm extremely familiar with, is the differentiation and the similarities, but again, the differentiation between borderline personality disorder and bipolar, whether that's bipolar 1 or bipolar 2, and I'll talk in more detail about them. I know I've done episodes, I've alluded to these in the past, but I don't think I've uh, done a, a full podcast episode um, about the totality of these two diagnostic criteria. Um, Two diagnoses. Now, in the previous diagnostic manuals, and, and I, I kind of like this, um, we had what was called the axial system, uh, axis one through five, and we would diagnose based on the different axes. And, and this was more, I think, as a way uh, to categorize and just organize versus anything that was had, uh, you know, axis one didn't wasn't more important than access two and, and vice versa. So access one, you know, my training was uh, primarily in the DSM four. And then shortly after the DSM four TR, which is the text revision. And we're now on the DSM five. And I think shortly we'll probably have the DSM five text revision. And um, it was, I think only to the fifties um, with Harry Stack Sullivan, did we come up with, um, you know, a, a cohesive diagnostic manual that uh, continues to grow. Um, it's not a perfect instrument or tool, but it, it, it is kind of the one that we, um, I mean, it's on the left side of my desk. Mine, I have several of them. They're usually the pages are, because I use it so often, um, it's filled with information. So you have like the desk reference, which is great if you're looking up just codes uh, or you just quick diagnostic criteria. But when you get into the full diagnostic manual, you have access to, you know, prevalence rates and 
gender differences and cultural differences and differential diagnoses. So in my role as a neuropsychologist, it, that, that, that book is incredibly useful because uh, it's my job to figure out where somebody falls into which category in that manual. So the actual system was access one, what were called the clinical disorders, major depressive disorder, OCD, um, bipolar being one. Access two were personality disorders, and the old term uh, was mental retardation, which is now intellectual disability disorder. Access three were the uh, any coexisting medical conditions that a patient may be diagnosed with or experiencing. Access four were psychosocial stressors, um, economic, um, uh, you know, like socioeconomic status or marital problems or or child problems. You know, anything you know, uh, stressors that were you know, impacting the person. And then we had this ubiquitous scale, which was called the Global Assessment of Functioning, which went from zero to 100 and had horrible reliability and validity. You basically would pick a number from, you know, zero was your comatose, 10 to your, or 100 was your functioning, you know, uh, at, at, you know, whatever premium level of functioning is. And you were just assigning arbitrary numbers. And, and they, they had... Uh, you know, suggestions and, you know, kind of, you know, decision trees. And it was never, it was, it, it really was a useless number, but it gave, you know, people, you know, ranking like, oh, they're functioning at, at level 50, but it was so subjective. Um, but back to bipolar and borderline and why I just kind of brought up the axes is um, bipolar is a clinical disorder whereas borderline is a personality disorder. Now, this is probably one of the most common referral questions that I get. Does this person, uh, child, adolescent, adult, have bipolar? Do they have borderline? Do they have both? And they, do they have something else? And the question is, yes, you could have one. You could have both, and you could have something else in addition, depending on it, uh, and what what what, the, what what all of the assessments that I'm able to administer and give someone, and that is why I will continually say, please get a neuropsych eval so you have certainty. I cannot tell you how many cases of people that I test off of stimulant medication that do not have ADHD. And ADHD, it, it, it's depression mimics ADHD, bipolar, OCD. And I tell people you don't have ADHD. I'm say I'm not discounting that you have attentional issues or you're having problems with attention and concentration, but I would never rely, and I've said this, I think, on the episode of ADHD, I would never rely as a diagnostician to diagnose somebody with ADHD based on a rating scale. I will use rating scales, and you can, you know, when you actually test the attentional systems, simple attention, complex attention, working memory, sustained attention, and you see they're all falling in the average to above average range, and then you give something like, uh, you know, a self-assessment or using the, the Vanderbilt, um, 
and a parent or teacher rates them, and you see there, there sometimes will be marked discrepancies. But that's why it's relying on the data of the actual performance on the assessment. So it's so crucial. And ADHD is also very, uh, is linked very much to bipolarity. All right. So what do we start with? All right. Let's start with why, why these two disorders look so similar. Um, a lot of it has to do with the types of behaviors individuals engage in. And, um, you know, I'm usually able, just from doing this on a day-to-day basis, I'm usually able to kind of parse out, even before I get to the testing, what I think is more leaning towards bipolar versus borderline. Now, going back to personality theory, attachment theory, uh, learning theory, personality is crystallized, for those of you guys who have been following this, between five and seven, five and eight years old. That is basically our template and uh, the blueprint of how we navigate our view of ourselves, our view of other people, our view of the world around us, and the conclusions and the therefores that we draw. That in and of itself is personality. Um, bipolar, and I think Julie's references when we talk about bipolar, is about neurotransmission. It is about chemical dysregulation. Uh, there is a lot of symptom overlap. On the episode I talked about on psychiatric hospitalization, inpatient stays, it is a very common diagnosis. Having run a psychiatric hospital, I can tell you the most common diagnoses were bipolar or schizoaffective disorder. And that was more or less a reason uh, because someone's coming in in a heightened state of agitation. And during that phase, you know, this is where everything kind of looks like things look like each other Um, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about um, borderline and they you know that if you cut you have borderline well you only 40% of individuals who have borderline personality cut Uh, people can be suicidal during a manic episode Um, uh, people can feel hopeless in both borderline and in bipolarity but these really are different and discrete and incredibly distinct disorders that require two totally different types of treatment, two totally types of intervention. And, um, you know, if we take bipolar, uh, there's three types of bipolarity. There's bipolar one, there's bipolar two, and there's cyclothymic disorder. The difference between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 is the depression is the same. Mania and hypomania are essentially the same symptoms. The, the differentiating factor is the duration of time that these symptoms last. For hypomania and bipolar 2, it's a maximum of four days. For bipolar, bipolar 1, or mania, it's at least a minimum of, of seven days, but it could persist into several months, generally followed by a, in a very severe depression, even more severe than just major depressive disorder. So bipolarity is a transition into an alternative mood state. 
It is not mood swings. It is not, and I spend a lot of time when I talk about uh, high risk, you know, uh, high risk behaviors, because these occur in both bipolar during mania or hypomania and in, in borderline personality. Hypersexuality being a primary, one of the most prominent behaviors. So in bipolarity, in mania, hypersexuality is dopamine is flooding the system, which is our neuro, pleasure neurotransmitter. So people engage behaviors that have a high degree of pleasurability, take sex, for example, without any regard for the consequences of their actions. They may not use protection. They may you know, forget about being, being faithful, uh, hopping on the plane to Las Vegas, buying rounds of drinks for people at a bar, um, hypertalkative, uh, could be more, maybe more seductive, recklessness, spending more money at a casino that you intended to, because when you feel the sense of, so it's marked by uh, decreased need for sleep, which is not insomnia. Insomnia is physically unable to sleep despite desperately trying to sleep, whereas in bipolarity and mania, a decreased need for sleep is I don't have much I don't have I I'm starting to amp up and when the decreased need for sleep starts to creep up that's usually a sign someone's about to enter into a manic episode uh feelings of grandiosity incredibly inflated sense of self-esteem uh, almost a godlike complex not psychotic uh, and euphoria, this extreme disproportionate happiness lasting for a distinct period of time. And it's very important in, in doing diagnostics. What I ask people when I'm talking about these is not only just give me examples, but to, even if because usually when we're doing testing, someone's not, it tends to be more, is usually asymptomatic. Um, you know, I think it's pretty hard to test somebody um if they're in a manic state, although I have, uh, but uh, it's difficult, but it can be done. So it's sometimes when people have, you know, really severe depression, because that is a distinct diagnosis in and of itself, major depressive disorder or persistent depressive disorder with intermittent major depressive episodes. That's, that's dysthymia. That's your low-lying depression with these these valleys of more severe depressive symptoms. But it's really important to differentiate. Are you Is the person transitioning into an alternative mood state or are they simply having good days when their depression isn't as bad? And I spend a lot of time, if this is kind of the referral question, in really getting examples and clarification. And sometimes I will ask people, if we're looking for this, I'll have them complete different assessments. Uh, I'll tell them, put yourself in the state uh, that you're in. If you know, Even though you may not be experiencing the depression at this point or the, the mania at this point, answer the questions from the perspective of when you are in those states so I can get a better picture of what it is you are experiencing. And, you know, through through like Socratic questioning and, 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 and just getting a good background and good history um, is crucial. And I've said this before, I never read hospital discharge records and I never read notes from therapists. Um, and it's not because I don't believe that the work is valid or true. I just think human nature is... Uh, 
you can't unknow something. If you read a word or you, you see something, you see bipolar, you see schizoaffective, you see narcissism, there's a the human tendency is to gravitate towards that and almost second guess yourself like, oh, maybe I'm missing something. So bipolar is really, it's a, a neurochemical disorder marked by two poles, one being depression and one being mania or hypomania. Now, when they talk about rapid cycling, rapid cycling by definition in the diagnostic manual is four manic or hypomanic episodes within a year. Now, it sounds kind of ironic, like rapid cycling four times a year. To meet the diagnostic criteria for a bipolar diagnosis, a person only has to have one manic or hypomanic episode at any point in their life. And depending on the type of medication they're put on, um, you know, Julie could probably speak, you know, you know, to that, um, you know, a lot of times when people are, are coming in, they're, they're more in the depressive state. And bipolar depression, in my opinion, and from what people have said, is a much deeper and darker and more persistent place. And that's why you a lot of times see substance use, um, often misuse of stimulants, misuse of uh, amphetamines or cocaine or crystal meth to kind of kickstart the body back into mania. But mania in and of itself uh, has a very negative connotation because... Um, People who have mania are able to do things that a lot of times other people aren't able to do. It's 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 the behavior that 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 gets them into trouble. Um, but you know, there's musicians who have been unmedicated who are able to stay up and write for hours, or artists, or actors, or painters, or painters. So you know, being able to use that in a, in a creative way, uh, emergency rooms, restaurants, fast paced environments. Uh, it's what's kind of called the goodness of fit model, being able to match like, you know, you know, personality, not just personality disorders, but just personality environment fit um, is, you know, so uh, putting somebody in a, in a, in a, in a library uh, stacking books who has, who has bipolar is not probably the best use, probably not the best career choice for them. Um, so again, bipolar, it does because it 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 it's really the 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 balance between depression and mania and not using the term mood swings and i think you know we've seen like in in tv shows and movies and just just social media uh, the term, you know, takes on a very pejorative connotation. It's like, oh my God, he or she is so bipolar. Or stop putting, you know, oh my God, he's so bipolar. It's like crazy. No, bipolar is not crazy. Can you have bipolar with psychosis? Absolutely. Can you have major depressive disorder with psychosis? Absolutely. And sometimes people can have, and I've mentioned this in one of the episodes about depression in terms of the specifiers. You can have major depressive disorder with mixed features, which is basically you meet all the diagnostic criteria for, for major depressive disorder, but you also have these features that look like mania and hypomania, but the it's the duration of time. That is the crucial part. That this isn't like a few hours. This isn't. This isn't like you know one day and it's gone. That's more consistent with a mixed episode of major depressive disorder. 
with those features of what looked like mania, but the duration of time is crucial. And people generally like mania, but they do not like the depression. And that's when you worry about suicidality. And oftentimes people with a history of bipolar one have had a psychiatric hospitalization at some point, or if not that, at least intensive outpatient treatment. Now, when you get into borderline, now, borderline is a personality disorder. So this is a more persistent and consistent way of how a person is operating through the world. Do they have highs and lows? Absolutely. But it's all predicated on safeguarding the, the fragility of the sense of self against real or perceived abandonment. And it could look, you know, they could have periods of euphoria, periods of, you know, like, and again, if you take sexualized behavior in, in, like I said, in bipolar, it's about dopamine and feeling good. And I don't care about the consequences. I'll deal with them later. In, 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 in borderline, it's about validation and filling a void and uh, the fear of abandonment. So the reasons why people engage in behaviors are incredibly important, as opposed to just looking at the behaviors in and of themselves. And, you know, understanding the trajectory of, you know, attachment theory is crucial in understanding borderline personality because the individuals, you know, you don't, you don't develop borderline in, in your 20s and 30s. You don't catch borderline. You don't catch bipolar. Uh, bipolar has a very high heritability index, though. One of the highest of, the, of all the psychiatric conditions. Borderline, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that there is a genetic component to it. Uh, I don't think we have enough evidence to really say for certain. Uh, but oftentimes, family members who have a parent with a, with a, with a personality disorder, uh, generally, and I'm speaking from a, just generalizing here, oftentimes uh, siblings um, will, you know, have traits or develop a, a personality disorder or they, you know, have the wherewithal to say like, oh my God, I'm checking out. I This is crazy town. I don't want any part of that. So... Again, where they where they look the same is this this especially when you do when the person's in a manic or hypomanic state or the the borderline is 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 excessively activated or uh, because of the abandonment uh, that's where the disorders look very similar um, and when they come into treatment it's you know if you're meeting with somebody for for you know forty five minutes. Uh, it's, I, it's pretty tough to get an accurate diagnosis, and that's why I said it's so commonly given on inpatient units, but there's so much overlap between the two of them, and borderline is often medicated like bipolar. So I'm going to let Julie jump on for a second because, again, this is something that we confront on a daily basis, and um, let's see let's see what she has to say. After she yelled at me for breaking a bottle. <clears throat> Hi guys, happy new year. Um, and, uh, thank you for all, all, all of our followers and our listeners and, uh, really appreciate your feedback. We love your questions. We love your calls and, um, we love talking to people all around the world about what they're struggling with. Um, whether it's a family member or themselves, um, trying to spread psychoeducation to destigmatize mental health, to make people feel less alone is probably where our heart and soul uh, lies, um, helping people, you know, giving them direction, 
um, in um, helping with obviously neuropsych evaluses. People do, believe it or not, come from all over the world to get their evals done. It's been quite extraordinary. Um, I, nothing that I would have expected. Um, so, you know, I think that there's enough um, information out there. There are a lot of people out there trying to help, a lot of influencers. I've mentioned them before. Uh, people have different ways of looking at life and people have different ways of describing symptoms and um, depression, anxiety, mania, um, ADHD, all that, um, and also trauma. Um, I think we should also do an episode including um, PTSD and complex trauma, uh, which is um, very often um, is more common than you think. Um, sometimes it's generalized anxiety, sometimes it's trauma-related anxiety, um, acute or chronic. But that is also something that I think that we are only focusing on bipolar bipolarity and borderline today. But um, very often when people have borderline personality traits on the continuum, um, and some people argue this, but uh, usually there's some sort of trauma uh, involved um, during their childhood and their uh, formative years. So having said all that, I've often um, talked about the, my perception, like my, my role um, in treatment of bipolar um, disorder and also borderline. Um, I think the distinct difference is um, if someone has insight well, first of all, you need an accurate diagnosis, and that's very difficult uh, for a lot of us um, in the business because, like I said, and it sounds cliche, we literally are taking a client's word for how they're feeling, and we have a tendency to chase symptoms. So if someone is coming to us and they're depressed, um, we, we are not really quite certain if that's bipolar depression or if it's major depression. And the route in which we take pharmace pharmaceutically is very different. And um, that is why it's so important to get an eval or as a clinician, and as you know this as any clinician, um, to get a very, very in-depth um, history of, uh, of, of their history of mood states and um, not, not mood swings. So having said that, um, so let's just tease this out a little bit. So bipolar disorder, if someone has been diagnosed formally as bipolar 1, bipolar 2, um, cyclothymia is another version of it, um, whether it's depression or mania, it, it really is treated in two different ways. If someone has bipolar depression um, versus mania, we're, we're going to reach for a certain medication versus another medication. Um, the mood stabilizers are the atypical, um, are the um, anticonvulsants as well. Lithium is the quintessential mood stabilizer, which treats both bipolar depression, uh, suicidality, and mania um, as a mood stabilizer. And I think I've talked about that a couple of times in previous episodes. I'm not going to discuss the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of that. Um, but Sometimes people who have borderline personality disorder really feel like they're out in the middle of the ocean waiting, waiting and waiting, meaning waiting, W-A-D-I-N-G, versus waiting. Um, they're kicking and they have no life preserver. 
Um, this is really very often, um, you know, very difficult to treat um, because when people are feeling that way, they feel a whole host of um, emotionality. Um, it could be agitation, irritability, depression, um, helplessness, hopelessness, anxiety, and they're treading water. If it is just borderline personality disorder and they don't know it, but it feels like depression and anxiety, PTSD, if it feels like bipolarity, because there's a lot of anxiety involved with bipolar disorder as well, and they don't know exactly what's going on, um, it can be very helpless because especially when they're in treatment with the psychopharmacologist and the psychopharmacologist is trying to treat the symptoms that the patient is presented with. So much so that in, in my experience, I humbly say, as well as my colleagues, um, if you have someone with borderline personality and they're not in appropriate therapy, it can be very difficult to treat because the medications don't tend to work. Medications there are like benzodiazepines for anxiety, um, you know, definitely treating certain symptoms. But at the but the end of the day, they can assuage, you know, some you know severe anxiety or panic, or depression depends on whether they have bipolar or major depression. That's totally different. Two different med classes altogether. Um, you know, it can be really difficult. I mean, you could numb people out a little bit um, and oh, medicate them so they're not feeling the feels that they would normally feel as they move through the world with, with, and I'm speaking specifically right now of borderline personality. And like I said before, on a continuum, there are diagnostic criteria. Um, Cor mentioned them earlier. I always kind of like to include the trauma piece because I think trauma is very heavily um, uh, associated with borderline personality. Um, and again, you know, it's very hard to treat people with borderline. If they're in proper therapy and they can develop, if they get the diagnosis, I can't even tell you how relieved people feel. Those are the calls that we get. We get so many calls, whether it's someone in calling for their own purpose or for the sake of a loved one or someone close to them. Um, it's a relational disorder. It has to do with, you know, your relationship to the world and your attachments. And that is where the symptoms um, arise is when you have difficulty in relationships and the, you know, your the fear of abandonment. And if that is, if that is on the table, um, it can aggravate the symptoms of borderline personality to the point where they can, people can get extremely agitated Um self-injurious, uh, uh, hypersexual, um, provocative, and also um, very depressed and helpless and angry, rageful. So these can all, they overlap. So that's sort of where the borderline sits. There's usually a reason. That's the point. There's a reason, there's a history there, whether someone is aware of their, you know, insightful about what tends to trigger them um, into these states. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely, there's cause and effect. It is definitely as someone moves through the world in relationship to others, particularly in close relationships. Um, it is often very challenging to work with people who have borderline personality who have not been formally diagnosed and have no insight. Um, that is where, you know, they tend to get aggravated with their providers and they, 
you know, move on to another provider because they're not being told what they want to hear. And there's no really diagnostic clarity to work with clearly for the patient's behalf and also the provider. Flipping back to bipolarity, bipolarity in definition, you've already heard earlier as court explained, um, bipolarity is very, very different. Bipolarity, if you talk to someone and work with people with bipolar disorders, they don't know why they're feeling, why they're feeling. It is a chemical feeling. It's a chemical train. They're on a train and it's taking them somewhere where they don't want to go. Mind you, mania can be really enjoyable. Um, sometimes when people are in hypomania, they're high, high, high functioning enough to realize when it's hypomania. Um, they don't technically really wind up getting into terrible problems, terrible trouble, or on inpatient units. That's not always the case, but that tends to be more an enjoyable form of mania because it's not an over-the-top mania, which Cora explained earlier. Um, then there's, you know, so the mania is people get a lot of things done. Uh, sometimes they get, like, similar to ADHD. If it's not treated, they start one project, they go to the next, blah, blah, blah. But they But they seem like they have insomnia because they are not sleeping, but it is not insomnia because they're not tired. Um, it's when you go for hours, days and days without, with not being exhausted. It's a revving energy and it's very unique in particular to bipolar disorder. Um, having said that, there are certain ways we treat that. And, and that's another episode because I don't want to get tweaked up in all the medications um, I'm happy to talk to uh, talk about that in further episodes as I have previously. So if we've done any bipolarity um, episodes before in the, the, the neuroscience behind it and the medication piece, we have done that. So you might want to skip through um, back, I don't even know when we did it, maybe a year ago, a few months ago to a year ago. Um, happy to um, do another one if people want updates. Um, then there's bipolar depression. Anyone who knows that they have been formally diagnosed with bipolarity, they know that the mood state of mania is right at the right at the end of the state of mania is a deep, deep drop into depression. And if people know their their diagnosis and they know their life experience with bipolar, they know that that's coming. That is when people usually seek treatment. That is why it gets a little dodgy when someone isn't formally diagnosed with bipolar. People only show up at, it, they don't usually show up during manic states. They usually wind up getting in trouble or wind up on an inpatient unit because they're driving, you know, recklessly or they've, you know, got into some trouble of some kind, uh, got into drugs, um, you know, or they become psychotic um, and they wind up, you know, being um, or aggressive uh, to themselves or to someone else. Um, they, they have pressured speech. Um, you can, you can definitely see the, the mania, but that is more for someone who is like bipolar one, I would say. So they don't usually seek it's someone else. It's family saying, Whoa, guys, you know, you're, you're out of control. Like it's happening again. And because it's a chemical thing, specifically, I think, is because it's a chemically driven thing inside someone's body, inside someone's brain, that it's very difficult for people to tease that out and say, oh, yeah, you're right. 
Um, sometimes you can, but very often that's not the case. So people tend to enjoy their mania, as Core mentioned before, and hypomania as well. And a lot of people in, you know, in entertainment industries, artists, uh, you know, just uh, really great minds um, have been diagnosed with bipolarity. Um, they get, you know, it can be a very creative experience to be in mania. Um, depression can also be creative. You know, people, you know, writers, uh, authors, uh, musicians, um, I could go on and on, but, you know, people working through their depression in such a way that they create these amazing, you know, amazing music, amazing novels. And so that's like, it's not always a bad thing. It's just sort of like, how do you use your mood states? Um, Suicidality is definitely common with um, bipolar depression as well as major depression. But because my point is, is that usually people show up when they're depressed. So as a provider, if someone doesn't have formal testing, and I say this with myself included, is when someone's coming to you not recognizing that they've had mania or hypomanic episodes just because they just don't know what it is. They're coming in and presenting as very depressed, maybe suicidal. So first line of treatment for someone presenting with depression is what? Antidepressant. What happens when you give someone an antidepressant who has bipolar bipolar disorder? It either creates a uh, an altered mood state of uh, tripping some in, somebody into mania, uh, or it increases so suicidal ideation. Um, so those are the SSRIs, SNRIs. Um, again. I'm not, everyone's trying to do their best, myself included, but this is just a teaching moment for those of you who struggle with bipolarity. You might think you have borderline. Next, I'm going to talk about what if someone has both? And that's very, very common. And this is where it's a very interesting, challenging, um, you know, part of treatment when you work with someone, because you really need, um, you need to be precise with medication. The pharmacology piece needs to be precisely following and treating the bipolarity while at the same, and anxiety and also symptoms associated with both. However, with, with bipolar and borderline mixed, okay, it is very difficult sometimes for providers and also clients, our patients, to discern what is the borderline piece because that's really treatable with therapy. Some meds help borderline, but that's really just for you know agitation, um, ag- anxiety, um, and other symptoms associated with it. However, if they don't, if a person does not get proper therapy, and I core, you know. A, uh, ad nauseum so talks about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I also have come to agree is excellent for um, borderline personality. I also agree that dialectical behavior is, therapy is also excellent for um, borderline personality. So for people who are experiencing both these conditions, it can be very troubling um, they have a really hard time navigating if they're not in proper treatment because it's like, okay, is this my, is this bipolar or is this borderline? And they'll say, is this my bipolar or is this my borderline? And I guess the peep, this is what the stigma is, right? People identify with their disorders like it's 
who they are when it really is just a condition that they've, that they have. And it's treatable just like diabetes. But unfortunately, the behavior of both of these scare clinicians away, um, especially borderline, because borderline, if it's not treated properly, can be exhausting. Um, it can, because borderline personality can, if it's not treated or you're not working with somebody like that, it can be absolutely exhausting to the point where, you know, therapy just doesn't work. Um, and like I said, people blow through providers and, um, you know, because they're maybe because they're not getting proper treatment, but there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of projection. There's a lot of, um, you know, conflict, uh, I hate you. Don't leave me kind of thing. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's probably other phrases, but, um, this is the tug of war with the therapy piece. And this is why it's very important that you find psychology today, find someone who actually likes working with this, this population, because a lot of people roll their eyes when this population shows up. Um, now if you have a therapist that's excellent at it, you want them to collaborate with your med provider. Collaboration is key. You need the team. This is why we love doing neuropsych testing, getting precise diagnostics. Then the medication person comes into play, whether it's me or somebody else. And then the therapists come into play. Everyone is all release has releases to speak with each other with the permission of the client patient. And we collaborate because that collaboration is key in working with these two conditions. Because I work with therapists and I who I trust who will say it's not it's not a medication issue, I don't think, Julie. This is a this is because so and so had a horrible breakup or a horrible fight. Whereas medication providers we don't even have the time to get into all that drama. We don't have the time. Insurance will only pay, you know, give us an hour for an intake and then 15 minutes, 20 minutes to a half an hour for follow-up. And that's not enough time to figure out what, what meds are working and aren't. And also having the time to get the whole context of what's going on with somebody's personality. We all have to do it if they're not in proper therapy or they don't have a therapist, we do it. But it's ideal when we can help teach a person to distinguish what is medicatable and what is not, what is the therapy issue so that they can live their best life. And that is, I think the essence of my career and why I do the podcast. Um, I certainly know that it's uh, my husband's, um, same, I think we're on the same page when it comes to this and we want to teach, we can't treat you, um, unless you're in the state of Massachusetts and you come and get testing and so forth. We can work with you there. If you live in Massachusetts, unfortunately, I'm only licensed in Massachusetts and this is not treatment. This is psychoeducation. We want to help people feel less stigmatized. There are so many people are walking around with this for years they don't know what's wrong with them. They can't put their finger on it. But when they get the neuropsych evals done, they're like, oh my God, I am so relieved. And that seems to be probably, I would say 99% of the time that's the case. And for providers who prescribe medication with a distinct diagnosis, 
that is so much easier for us because for us, if we know there's no bipolarity involved, we can go ahead and very confidently pursue antidepressants um, or you know SSRIs, SNRIs for anxiety. Uh, they treat anxiety as well, all various different kinds of anxiety disorders. So, and then working with the therapist to find that balance. It's, it's, it's a dance. It's kind of like, okay, okay. So that if the therapist can educate me on what's going on with them in therapy, I can say, okay, what working with your therapist, not a behind, not a behind your back sort of thing. This is collaborative. It's not talking behind your back. This is about how we can communicate with each other as a treatment team to give you the best treatment. And so to inevitably help people live their best life. God bless you. Happy New Year. And we'll talk to you next week. Well, thank you, Julie. Um, like I said, this is probably going to be a longer episode because um, these are very complex um, clinical disorders, but they they are treatable. Um I've said this before, and I stick to this, that borderline personality is not only treatable, it's curable. Uh, Bipolarity is manageable, um, often with the use of psychotropic medications. Um, But there's other people who have found alternative ways to effectively manage it. But with any type of diagnosis or, or... Condition it requires work, it requires treatment, and yes, Julie and I we differ in uh, you know I'm very strong um, cognitive behavioral psychology, rationally motive therapy, um, but it 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 does take work, and uh, like I said, the advantage of neuropsych testing is I get. Uh, a few hours with people and behavioral observations are crucial and it's um it's just it it it's it's it gives you definitive answers and especially when you're talking about two disorders that have so much symptom overlap and and to Julie's point yes you can't have both and that can be quite challenging and uh, when you get the background and you get the information and you hear the story it it it, it all tends to make sense um so I don't want to take up too much of everyone's time. And, uh, you know, I mentioned cyclothymia, and that's basically somebody doesn't meet the full criteria for major depressive disorder and does not meet the full criteria for mania and hypomania. So that's the least severe form of the bipolar disorder. So uh, probably a topic that we will definitely approach again Um there's again there could be other comorbidities i haven't even gotten to, into the concept of being di- diagnosed with more than one personality disorder which can be done this is not multiple personality there is no such thing as that um and the other point i wanted to make is uh the the importance of uh the earlier to getting in to see somebody a provider uh preferably getting in for a neuropsych eval um you know whoever t- if you've ever been told that you can't diagnose a person's disorder in children and adolescents that is a complete fallacy it says so specifically in the dsm with the exception of antisocial um because that's a legal reason because at 18 you can be tried as an adult in the united states and i've seen so many people so many kids go undiagnosed 
with a with stick with borderline because people didn't want to place a label on it. Well, you know what? The, it, it's something you have is not something you are. And my passion as a diagnostician is I'm not saying there's something defective or wrong with you, but if you meet the diagnostic criteria, why are you going to withhold giving some of the information to say, and I've used this analogy with multiple people, it's like, you know, I'm taking your blood test and your A1C is 14, but because you're nine, I'm not going to tell you for another, you know, until you turn 18. That is complete and utter just nonsense. So the earlier you can get people in, the earlier you can get diagnosed, the better the prognosis and the treatment outcomes are. So thank you for continuing on this journey with us. Uh, there's so many different topics. Um, I, again, email me with um, topics and, and questions and things that you would like us to talk about Um and this is a highlight of our week and wishing everybody a happy and healthy and productive 2024. Um, and may God bless you, keep you safe, and thank you for everything that you've given to us uh, through your feedbacks and comments. And I will talk to you guys next week. All right. Bye, guys.